Thanks, band. Welcome again to Hiawatha Church to our uh, first summer service, our uh, single service at 10 a.m. I was joking with uh, Peter and Leah and others. We don't have a practice anymore, so this better go right because we don't get to do it again uh, this Sunday. So, uh, but welcome. We're happy that you're here, especially if you're a visitor this morning. We want to thank you for giving us a, a chunk of your morning on your day off. Um, we, we love having visitors here. Hiawatha is, we, we hope it is, a welcoming place, a safe place for people to come and ask questions, to have doubts, to wrestle through uh, tough things, through hard things, through things that maybe they don't know, or maybe just stuff they're wrestling with in life. And one of those is, we're going to be talking about uh, a big question today, is who is Jesus? Uh, my wife and I uh, just found a, a new Netflix comedy. Can't necessarily recommend it. It's, it's kind of funny, kind of weird. But uh, in it, uh, the, there's, a, there's a God character that speaks to a, a human. And basically, this God character tells this human, uh, basically, all gods are the same. You're, you're just using a bunch of different names. We're all, we're all just one God, and you know, each one's kind of true. And... Uh, First of all, that's not true. If, if, if you maybe have, have heard that, that's not all true. But then a little bit later on in the, the show, there's a Muslim and an agnostic kind of like just talking through, okay, who do you think Jesus is? This is who I think Jesus is. What does your religion say about him? And that question, who is Jesus, is, is one of the greatest, maybe the greatest question you can answer, that you can work to find uh, uh, an answer to. And that is the question that Jesus himself answers multiple times today in our passage. So right now we're in a sermon series in the book of John. John was one of Jesus' disciples. He's writing about eyewitness accounts of what Jesus said, what he did, what he taught, the, the conflicts that he had with people. And we're jumping in right in the middle of a big conflict between Jesus and a crowd of people. And in this uh, interaction, we're going to see Jesus explicitly and implicitly share four uh, very important core truths about who he is, kind of getting more and more important as we go through this argument. And the last one, the most important one, Jesus is going to say to this religious crowd of, of Jewish people that know their Old Testament really well, he's going to tell them that he is I am. He is Yahweh. He is the God of the Old Testament, the God that they say they love and follow and worship. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59, uh, or use the Pew Bible in front of you or your phone app, um, and it will also be on the screen behind you. John 8, starting in verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do uh, know him, and I keep his word. 
Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So, so far in John, we've seen Jesus, again, John, Jesus' disciples, writing his eyewitness accounts of what he actually saw happen. Jesus has been teaching, he's been doing miracles, and in the past few weeks, we've been unpacking this big argument that's turned into a fight that ends with these, uh, this crowd wanting to kill Jesus, literally picking up stones to execute him right there. So, so far uh, in this argument, we have seen this, this group of people, it, this, it starts off by saying these were Jews who had believed in Jesus. So they liked the Jesus that was doing miracles. They liked the Jesus that was even teaching some good, powerful, authoritative things. Yet as we go uh, throughout this discourse or this disagreement between Jesus and this crowd, we, th- we see things get worse. We see Jesus begin to say, you think that you're following God, but you're really not. You think that Abraham is your father, but guess what? You're more like sons and daughters of Satan himself, and they're hating him. So that's kind of where we pick up today. So far, the the verse right before our passage here today, uh, verse 47, Jesus tells the crowd, he said, whoever is of God hears the word of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So right off the bat, right before our passage starts, Jesus is speaking to this crowd and, and telling them truth out of love. It is very hard for them to hear when he says, you are not of God. You're good Jewish people. You're, you're religious leaders. You're, you're, you're good Hebrews. Yet you are not of God. And they're furious. And, and they respond to Jesus with this insult. They say, are we not right in saying that you have a demon? And that you are a Samaritan. So they say right off, you know, uh, they, they fire back at Jesus saying, you are demon possessed. You have Satan living inside of you. We're not children of Satan. You are from Satan. You have a demon inside of you. You are a Samaritan, which is this hated ethnic group that the, were kind of like half-breeds that had rejected the God and, and their Hebrew uh, family members. And notice how Jesus responds. He responds first by making it very clear, no, angry mob, I I am not demon-possessed. But also notice what Jesus does too. He doesn't address the insult of being a Samaritan. So he's not giving in to the racism and hatred towards this ethnic minority who's compromised the Jewish faith. And if you know more about Jesus and his ministry, he is himself the ultimate a good Samaritan, if you know that parable as well. But that's for, for, for another day. So Jesus continues now to debate this crowd, this crowd that's furious at him right now, that we, we will see eventually will pick up stones to, to execute him. And as this argument uh, begins to come to a close, it kind of wraps up at the end of our passage here today, Jesus progressively makes it more and more clear exactly who he is and exactly what he came to do. No longer can people just kind of follow him thinking he's the next best trending rabbi that has the the newest, latest uh, ways to understand the Old Testament or how to follow God, but rather he is going to make it very clear exactly who he is and exactly what he came to do. 
And the first thing we see in our passage is that Jesus is declaring that he is the master. He is the Lord over death. Jesus has made this clear multiple times already throughout John. We're going to see this pattern over and over again. Jesus saying, if you abide in my word, if you believe me, if you receive the gospel, you will not die. You will have everlasting life. You will not see death. You will not taste death. That theme will come up again and again in John. We've already seen it. We've seen it. We'll continue to see it throughout John. But death will not imprison Jesus, nor will it be the ultimate future of those who are in him, those who are united to him, or as he says here, those who keep his word. So keeping my word, just a, a few verses earlier, he said, abide in my love or abide in my word. So essentially what he's saying here is those who keep the gospel. So the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension hasn't fully come into the world yet. It, it's, we're still right before that in the storyline so far. But when Jesus says, keep my word, he's saying those who keep my gospel, those who are abiding in the good news of, of salvation through faith in Jesus, abiding in Jesus himself, who John 1 said Jesus is the word. Notice too that Jesus doesn't say, if you abide in, if you keep the law, you will not see death. If you follow the, the Ten Commandments, if you follow the prophets, if you're a good child of Moses, if you abide in the synagogue, you will not see death. But Jesus says, if you abide in my word, my word. But you might be thinking, okay, that's great, Jesus, yet I know that all these uh, disciples that you have, guess what? They all taste death. They all see death. What's, what's going on here? So when Jesus says that those who abide in his word will never see death, what does that mean? Or what does that not mean? Well, first of all, it does not mean that Jesus is saying that uh, everyone who abides in his word is, is kind of like uh, Mario, you know, gets the, the star that makes them completely untouchable forever. We just run through life with, with shells and fireballs just bouncing off us, and we are untouchable. Because we know, right, people, people die. The disciples die. Unless Jesus comes back, we all in this room will die. So what does Jesus mean when he is saying this? Today, we're going to look at two aspects or, or two angles of what Jesus means that he has defeated death for those who are in Christ. And the first, first one is, is death as separation from God. Death not just your, your life ceasing to exist. We will talk about that. But the Bible also speaks about death as being separated from God, separated from our creator. If we look at the very beginning of the Bible, very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 2 the second chapter, and we read, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God tells our, our first human parents, uh, You can do everything. You can do everything except eat from this one tree. And on the day that you do eat of it, if you eat of it, that day you will die. But guess what? Spoiler alert, they eat it, and they did die, but they died spiritually on that day. Their relationship with their creator was broken. Yet even so, God showed them mercy, and they did not die physically on that day. As we keep reading Genesis 3, just the next chapter, we read, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. 
to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So when our first parents died, when they rebelled against God, when Sid entered into the world, they did die. And they died spiritually. Their connection, their relationship, their closeness to their God and creator was broken. And from then on, for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years, humanity literally could not approach God. Because of their spiritual death, they could not be near God. They were far from him. Their relationship with him was broken. Yet again, after a time, God showed mercy. He moved towards humanity, and he chose this nobody named Abram and made a promise to him. And from Abram, who later became Abraham, we have the nation of Israel, the, the Hebrew people, the faith of the Jews. And part of that, God's covenant with his, with his people, God giving humanity a second chance, God showing them so much mercy and grace, part of that was uh, something called the tabernacle, a giant tent that was kind of like a temple where God's presence, in, in, in some ways, would live among his people. So it was in some ways, a way to kind of get back to the garden, a way in which God could live among his people, or his people can, in some ways, kind of be close to him. And later, that turned into the temple. In that, there were some ways humanity could begin to move close to God, could kind of recreate in, in, in veiled and in, in not nearly as great ways what they had before in the garden, but never fully, never the way it used to be back in the garden. So for thousands of years, God's people worshipped him through a temple. Here's, here's a picture of the ancient temple. Yet even though there was a temple, even though God's presence lived among his people, even though they could kind of get close to him, they could never get too close. Things could never return to the way that they were. There was actually many different courts. So depending on who you were, what type of person you were, whether you had diseases or, or money or depending on what nationality you were, you could maybe get closer and closer and closer to God's presence that dwelled in the middle of the temple. So it's kind of, those are the courts there. Kind of zoom up on the middle of the temple there. And at the very center of the temple, there was a room called the Holy of Holies. And that is where God's presence dwelled here on earth among people. The Holy of of holies, where no one could get close to. No one could enter, except for the high priest, just on one day. My uh, personal favorite theologian, Amy Peterson, uh, who's also my wife, wrote this. Um, it's kind of hard to see. It looked beautiful on Instagram, but it's a little hard for you guys to see there. But she says uh, about this, she says, the holy of holies was guarded by a curtain with cherubim, uh, woven into it. The cherubim on the curtain reminded the people of the cherubim guarding the entrance to the, gate, uh, to the Garden of Eden. It was a painful but necessary reminder that their sin kept them from approaching God. But thankfully, the story doesn't end there. And so even when someone could get kind of close to the presence of God, they, they stared at this enormous curtain and, and, and printed on this curtain was a picture of the angels holding a sword saying, you cannot enter because of your sin. You are spiritually 
dead. You are separated from God. But thankfully, the story doesn't end there. In Jesus, when Jesus says, those who who trust in me, who abide in my word, will never see death, Jesus is saying that in him, separation from God is being removed. Separation from God does not have to be our our reality again. Actually, John, the Gospel of John that we're in right now, it starts off by saying, in John 1, Jesus comes into the world and he lives among us. So the first readers would say, they would think about, hey, God has never lived among us. God has been maybe kind of among us through the tabernacle or the temple, but now something new is happening. God in flesh is living among us. In fact, that word dwelt among us In John 1 is the word tabernacle. Jesus came into the world and tabernacled among humanity. Something new is happening. Something great is happening. And in Jesus, we see humanity being removed, separated, alienated, far from God, is being taken care of. Later on in the New Testament, we read about this in Ephesians 2, describing our state apart from faith in Christ. It says this, Ephesians 2 uh, tells us, remember that you were at, the, uh, at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. And how are we brought near? We have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So Jesus foreshadowing here in John chapter 8, what he's going to do on the cross. Now, through his death and through his resurrection, we can now be brought near God through Jesus' blood. And this is not only going to be true of our spiritual reality, but Jesus will also remove our separation from God physically in eternity too. So right now, if you have faith in Christ, you are no longer separated from God spiritually. You are no longer aliens or, or distant or his enemies, but through faith in Jesus, that blood has brought you close. You're connected to him. You're even united with him, as Pastor Chris talked about last week, the, the, the doctrine of union or oneness with Christ. But it's not just true about our spiritual reality, which it is, but it will also be true of our physical and eternal reality too. If you're a Christian in this room, our story ends like this. The book of Revelation, a vision of how eternity will look, how Jesus will fully defeat sin and death. It's described like this. Again, John writing, and he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, something new is happening. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the eternity that Jesus brings to those who have faith in him. He will live again with us, not just spiritually, through his spirit, in our hearts and in our lives right now, but physically and eternally. God will dwell with humanity again on the new heaven, or in the new heaven, in the new earth. Jesus is the master of death who can remove the barriers, the barriers of our separation from God 
because of our sin. Second thing, and because Jesus, he continues, because Jesus is master over death, both physical death and over spiritual death, because he can truly and fully fix our problems of being separated from our God, Jesus is telling the crowd he is greater than Abraham. He is greater than the prophets. Again, back back to verse 52. Then the Jews said to him, We know that you're demon-possessed, because Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than Abraham, who died, and the prophets, who died? Who do you think you are? Who are you calling yourself to be? They yell back to Jesus. And his response is yes. Yes, guys, I, I am greater than Abraham. Our ancestor, the founder of our faith, the founder of our nation, the founder of our ethnicity. Yes, I'm greater than Abraham. And yes, I am greater than all the prophets, all the good guys, everyone that's on the Mount Rushmore of Israel, the Mount Rushmore of the Jewish faith. Yes, Jesus says, I am greater than them. It's kind of wild to think of what Jesus is saying here. We don't don't have a lot of great one-to-ones to really understand just the weight and the power and the like, the jaw-dropping that is probably going on in the crowd as they hear Jesus say this. But I did think of a, a, a pretty good one-to-one correlation that's very relevant. So it, it would be as if Jesus was kind of like a new guy showing up in front of the Jedi Council and saying, guys, I am better than all of them. I will never die. And the Jedi Council looks at this, this little guy and they say, wait, you're greater than Mace Windu? Come on, you're greater than Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're greater than Yoda. They all die, but you say you're not going to die? And Jesus stands up and says, yep, I am. I'm greater than the best of the best. And he's going to prove that. We're going to see that soon in John. Jesus, not just say that he can defeat death, not just say he's better than the best of every man and woman that come before him, but we're going to see Jesus rise victorious over death out of that grave, unlike any other spiritual hero, honored ancestor, or great prophet of the Jewish people. But not only that, Jesus doesn't just resurrect himself, but he also will raise his followers. He is, as the New Testament calls, he's the first fruit of what we all will experience. So Jesus was raised in a physical body, to live in eternity. And the New Testament looks at that and they says, Jesus is the first fruit. He's the first example of what you can expect, Christian, of what your eternity will look like. Physical, without disease, without aging, without aches and pains and brokenness and sin. Jesus' resurrection is an image of the one you and I will receive. If you are a Christian here today. So here's the second angle that we're going to take on Jesus saying that those who believe in his word will not taste death. And that is the angle that those who are in Christ won't ultimately see death. Even if we do die, we will not ultimately see death. When believers die, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, when you die, even though you are experiencing death to to some extent, Jesus says that you will not ultimately taste death, that your souls 
will go to be with him. In fact, we see Jesus speak to a thief on the cross who says, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus says, today, today you will be with me in paradise. Thief, when your body dies, because of your faith, you will join me. You will be with me, and you will be with me in paradise. And later in the New Testament, we see the Apostle Paul teach that when, when our bodies die as Christians and are buried, yet our souls will be connected with our Savior, where he dwells and reigns. And yet our final destiny is not heaven, as Chris picked up on, I think, a few weeks ago, and we've seen in John as well. Our final destiny is not heaven, nor is it only spiritual. We don't just go to be with Jesus reigning in heaven without our physical bodies. That's not where we end. That's not what eternity fully looks like. But rather, our eternity is one that's both spiritual and physical. Here, on a restored, a redeemed earth, in our resurrected bodies that look a lot like Jesus' resurrected body as well, who is the first fruit of that. Author Elise Fitzpatrick writes about this. She says, at the physical return of the God-man, so Jesus Christ, uh, to earth, he will clothe all his children in their new resurrected bodies. The souls of those who have already died will be reunited to their resurrected bodies. Those who are still alive is coming will be instantly transformed. So Christian, your bodies, Jesus will reunite with your soul when he returns. Our future is a resurrected physical life with Jesus on a restored new earth. And that is the eternal hope, the eternal hope, the physical hope that Jesus gives to all those who trust in him, those who keep the word of his gospel. Now these people, the crowd is wondering, you might be wondering, okay, well, I, 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 maybe I see now what Jesus is claiming, but, but how? How does this guy have the power over death? How is this great prophet, this great rabbi, how is he able to say, I'm not just the best prophet, but I'm even greater than them. How, how is he able to have the power over death? And Jesus continues by telling us the way he has the power over death is because he is the son of God. Verse 54, Jesus answered the crowd. He said, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. So Jesus is saying, you say you have a God. That God is my father. I'm not just a prophet or a teacher or the next Abraham. I am actually the son of God. All right, this is hard to understand. So ready to have your minds blown? This is, but this is also Christianity 101, but we just cannot figure it out. Our God is a triune God. Our God is a trinity. Our God is a plurality. Our God is both a one and also an eternal loving community. How does that work? We, we don't know. If you're a logic major, you love math or, or whatever, this, this can be really frustrating to you, right? How is God one yet has three persons? I don't know. I don't know. But that's what the Bible teaches. That's what all of Christianity across the globe for thousands of thousands of years have believed. And while it can hurt our brains to try to figure it out, it's also a very kind of beautiful, reassuring thing to know we can't fully figure out our God. If there really is a God, he would be a, a pretty puny God if we could completely understand every single aspect of him and his character. 
And so even though the Trinity is hard to understand, it is true and it is good news for us. So Jesus is saying, I am the Son of God. Now, at the very beginning of the Bible, while it, it becomes quite, or it is quite foggy and hard to understand, as we read through the Bible, and especially now as Jesus has come in the stage, understanding who God is continues to become more and more clear. But even at the very beginning of the Bible, the very beginning, chapters 1 and 2, we see God being plural. We see God being a community. We see God being more than one. When God creates, he says, let us make humanity in our image. So even at the beginning, we see that God is both one, but also a community, also a plural. So here, the common, I mean, impossible to, to under, fully understand or to, uh, through picture, through symbol, help you understand. But we have one God, we have Jesus the Lamb, we have God the Father, and we have the Holy Spirit, yet interconnected, yet distinct. How does that all work? I don't know. Take our systematic theology class. We spend a few hours trying to unpack that. <clears throat> so Jesus says to the crowd, I am the Son of God. I am divine. Mary uh, Wiley, who's a theologian, writes about this, begins to put some words to help us understand that. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. So God the Father, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. Mary Wiley writes, God the Son has been with God the Father and the Holy Spirit since before time began. All things were created through him, which we read back in, back in John 1. We actually, John 1 says, look, at Genesis 1, when God creates everything, Jesus is there. And we actually see the Holy Spirit there as well. And Jesus possesses all the attributes shared with the Trinity. When God became man, called the incarnation, he took on human nature, making him fully 100% man. Yet in becoming fully man, Jesus did not give up his divinity. So he remained fully 100% God. So to answer the question, that you maybe are thinking, that the crowd is wondering, how is Jesus greater than Abraham? How is he greater than the prophets? How can he be master over death? No one's ever been master over death. No one's been better than Abraham before. How can Jesus fix the problem of humanity being separated from God because of their sin? A problem that has dwelled in humanity for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years? The answer to that is good news for us, that Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God. It's great news for us. Jesus, he's not just a new Abraham, not just a new prophet, not just a moral teacher nor a rabbi, but he is God. And he is God in flesh. And because he is both fully human like us, but also fully God, his death can accomplish what we sinful, broken humans need a death to accomplish. Reformer Martin Luther writes about this, this, this great news that Jesus is God, fully God and fully man. Martin Luther writes, For if the person who offered himself as a sacrifice for us were not God, it would not help or avail anything, even if he was born of the Virgin Mary and suffered a thousand deaths. But the fact that the seed of Abraham, who gave himself for us, is also true God, secures blessing and victory for all sinners. Therefore, Christ speaks not of his human nature, 
that they saw and experienced, now he is speaking here especially of his divine nature. But here reason is terribly offended and becomes mad and furious because God should become man. This human reason cannot harmonize and understand. So even the brilliant Martin Luther says, our brains just can't get it. Such great news. Yet we also just cannot figure it out and our brains hurt trying to figure it out. So here, as our, our passage wraps up, Jesus is not just master over death, not just better than Abraham and the prophets. He's not only the son of God, but Jesus wraps this up by saying he is, is not only calling himself the son of God, but he is calling himself equal with God, fully God, full part of the Trinity. And not just even saying that he's eternal, which he is saying here, but also saying that he is the God of the Old Testament, the God to, that showed up in the bo- uh, burning bush and spoke to Moses. He calls himself the great I am. In, our, uh, in verse 58, Jesus says to the crowd, so when they say, how, how are you greater than Abraham? You're not even 50 years old. He responds to them by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now notice what Jesus is doing here. One thing he's doing, he doesn't just say, I was, which is true. Jesus is infinite. Jesus was at the beginning. Jesus has lived forever. He is eternal. So Jesus is saying that, but he doesn't say before Abraham was, I was, to answer their question, saying, actually, I'm older than Abraham. I was there when he was born. I am the God of creation back in Genesis 1. But Jesus is also more importantly saying, I am, which is the name that God gave Israel, the name that he gave his people when they asked, who Now, it's kind of strange for us because most of us don't have two names like this. I guess, you know, maybe from the South, you have Mary Sue and, you know, names like that. But here, I am is one name. It's the God, it's the name that God uses to describe himself. So, Way back uh, when the nation of Israel, it had been rescued from slavery in Egypt. God is, God is making his people into a nation. They're about to go to the promised land. Actually, this is right before this. Uh, God tells Moses, I'm going to have you do it. You're going to be my redeemer, my rescuer. And Moses is like, um, I'm terrified. Pharaoh's strong. Like, I'm going to lose. No one's going to listen to me. And so Moses, back in uh, Exodus 3, Moses asks God, He says, if I go to the Israelites and say to him, the God of your uh, ancestors has sent me to you, they're going to ask, well, what's his name? How do you know it's our God? How do you know it's not a different God? How do you know it's not a fake God? Or you're hallucinating in the desert, Moses. They're going to ask, what is his name? So Moses asks God, what should I tell them? What is your name? And this is how God responds in verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So for generations, for thousands of years, the people of God, the Israelites, 
the, the, the nation of Israel has known that this is God's holy name. This is God's personal name. If you want to know who the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is, his name is I Am. And Jesus says this name. They say, who are you, Jesus? Who are you? And Jesus says, I am better than Abraham. I am before Abraham. And if you want to know who I am, I am. Jesus says, I am, I am. So this word, I am, has the, the, the Hebrew consonants, Y-H-W-H, which it's hard to say, so we add vowels in there. So I am, the, the way we say that, Throughout the Bible is the word Yahweh, which maybe you're familiar with, the name of God being Yahweh. Most English translations don't say that word Yahweh. They use the word Lord, but Lord with all capital letters. So whenever you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, in your Bible, they're using this name of God, I am. And to think that, hey, maybe you're making a stretch, Spencer, or maybe, you know, this is not quite what Jesus meant. Maybe it's coincidence his opponents know exactly what Jesus is doing. This is the first time where they literally try to kill him on the spot. They say, how are you better than Abraham and the prophets? And Jesus says, because I am. And they freak out and they pick up stones and they try to execute him right there on the spot. His opponents knew exactly what Jesus was saying. The question we've been asking all morning, and you should be asking, we should care about is, is who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the great I am. Jesus is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus is the second member of the Trinity. He is the Son of God. He is the Lord. Later on in the story, after Jesus, or after God rescues his people out of Israel, makes them into a nation, uh, he's giving them, uh, he's, he's covenanting with them. We pick it up in uh, Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. The Lord, Yahweh, descended in a cloud and stood with Moses there, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. Verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. So as, as God is, is making a covenant community, he says, this is who I am. You want to know who I am? You want to know my character? Do you want to know exactly who Yahweh is? Let me tell you. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love to the, to the thou, thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity, and transgressions, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, and the children's children, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. Do you know that this is, this is how God continually describes himself in the Old Testament? This, this, this phrase, these sentences over and over again, multiple times, many times in the Old Testament, God says to his people, I am Yahweh, you want to know who I am? This is who I am. I am merciful. I am, I am gracious. I am slow to anger. I forgive again and again and again. And I'm also just. I'm a good God that's also just. I cannot look at evil, at murder, at adultery, at people harming one another, at people uh, hurting each other. 
people worshiping themselves. I cannot look, just overlook that because I am good and I am loving. So we have both of these sides of the same coin of Yahweh's character. He is patient and loving and forgiving and faithful. Yet he is also, because of all that, he, he has wrath against sin. And he doesn't just overlook it. And here describes humanity's problem. Our problem, right? Because we started at the beginning of our, of our sermon being reminded we are part of humanity. We have our father's, uh, we're all sons of Adam. We have our father's guilt, his sin kind of wrapped around our, you know, our, our DNA. His blood is infecting us. His sin runs through our veins apart from, from saving faith in Jesus. And so in seeing Yahweh's nature and understanding who he is and Jesus saying, I am that same God, we have both good news and bad news. But thank God the story doesn't just end here in Exodus 20. Here in our passage today, Jesus is publicly declaring he is Yahweh. Jesus is saying, I am the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I too am slow to anger. I'm abound in faithful love. I am gracious. I am merciful. I will forgive sins over and over and over again. Yet I am also just, and I don't just let the guilty walk free. And this is the great news of the gospel. The Son of God did not only fix the problem of spiritual death by making a way for us to be brought near to God, which he did, but in order for us to stay in relationship with God, our sin, our rebellion, our independence, our self-worship had to be fixed. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Because of our sin, what we earn is death. And so Jesus had to fix that. And so the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, became a man. Like Luther applauded uh, when we just read his quote earlier. Jesus became a man to die in our place to satisfy the justice of a fair and just Trinitarian God, Yahweh, so that we can have our slates wiped clean, so that we can have victory over death, so that we can be reunited with our God and our Creator. We, as sons and daughters of Adam, were far from God. We are dead in our sins, yet Yahweh, putting on flesh, did something that prophets could never do, that fathers could never do, that heroes of the faith could never do, that the law could never do, that you could never do, that I could never do. Only Jesus, the divine I am, could rescue us, could heal us, could bring us back to God, could remove our sin, could resurrect us, could give us a hope for eternal life. And praise be to God, he did. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this good news, this good news that has 100,000 different facets, that you sent your son, the divine I am, to rescue us, to heal us, to give us spiritual life, to give us physical life, to give us eternal life. God, we thank you that what the law, what Abraham, what the prophets, what no one could do, what we could not do, your son did. Help us to put our faith fully and truly in that alone. Help us to 
celebrate the gospel, the, the good news that Jesus died in our place, that God himself became man and died the death that we deserve so that we would never have to experience death. We would never have to experience separation from you. That we would never have to experience eternity away from the one being that we were designed to live in community with and to, to, to thrive uh, connected to. We thank you for this good news. Help us to believe it today in our doubts and in our questions. Give us more faith, we pray, whether for the first time saving faith or whether for the, the, the millionth time because we forget, we grow weary, we still wrestle with our sin. We ask for more faith, we pray, Jesus. Amen.